Welcome to the SPU Voices podcast, an interview show where we hear personal stories that have universal impact. My name is Amanda Stubbert, and I am your host. I'm also the alumni director at Seattle Pacific University. This is my producer. My name is Kyle Brown, and I am an alumnus of SPU. I am also an alum and a current parent, so we're pretty attached to this place. But the best part of our jobs is when we get to hear these stories that actually change lives. So whether you're working out or sitting at your desk pretending to work, sit back and relax. Let's tell some stories. James Lackey fills many roles. He's a father, pastor, husband, and school board member. The one thing that all these roles have in common is it takes love to do them well. If you've ever wondered what impact love can have on a community, then this is the episode for you. James Lackey graduated from SPU in 2014 with his Master's of Divinity. From SPU, James headed back to his hometown of Orville, California, where he helped plant a church called The Table and now serves as their lead pastor. On top of being a husband, a father of three, and a full-time pastor, James ran for a seat on the local school board last year, and he won. James, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here and honored that you all want to talk to me. So, Of course we want to talk to you. <laughs> we definitely want to hear your story. Um, so let's start off. Why did you want to be a pastor? I think that's always a good question for pastors. Yeah, that's a great question on this side of being a pastor. <laughs> Honestly, what it was for me was that uh, I was raised... I was raised a heathen, if I can use that word. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't go to church my entire life. None of my family ever did. And so I chased this girl to church when I was uh, 14. And my family's very dysfunctional and struggles with addiction and all the problems that I might bring up about our community were in my own home. And so chasing this girl to church, uh, I found a community of people that actually not only loved each other, but liked each other and served each other and and were just happy to be around each other and laugh. And uh, it was something that I really wanted and needed in my own life, Mm -hmm. especially as a teenager, a young teen. That's what really got me into the church was this loving community, this family of people. And then I started getting all these questions of like, what do I want to do with my life? And those were questions we asked each other in my neighborhood, my poorer neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And so I started really thinking about it. And I had this radical conversion to the faith. And essentially I said, I want to do whatever it is that helped me get to where I am. I want to help people like I've been helped. I used to say things like if I could bottle this transformation I'm going through, I'd be a millionaire. And my pastors were just heroes to me. And I thought, I want to try to do something like that. I had no aspirations for my future. My family's aspirations were to try to keep me out of jail. And so... um, Which is not a bad aspiration. No, it's a great aspiration. (laughs) Yeah. So thinking about what I want to do with my life really got me thinking about vocational ministry, and which was great because I had no plans to go to college. And in our tradition at the time to become a pastor, you had to go to college. And so that really started me on a totally new journey educationally and spiritually. And I said it about age 15. I said, I'm going to be a pastor and everyone applauded and cheered. And then for years that kind of followed me in a good way and it kept me on track. Um, but this side of being a pastor was like, I said that really young yeah. and I'm really glad that I did. It felt like God had put a call in my life, put me on trajectory that kept me going for a long time. Okay. Before we move on. Yeah. I know I'm not the only one wondering. So what about the girl? Oh, married her. Yeah, <laughs> I did. Okay, okay. <laughs> we stayed together and we got married young. Actually, we got married at uh, 19, just out of wow. high school, waited a while to have children. 
but we stayed together and I'm celebrating 15 years of marriage uh, this August. And Congratulations. Uh, thank you. We're very excited about that. And so, yeah, I realized that I needed to lock that down pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Time was not my friend. <laughs> and she's been a, a huge blessing to me and, and I to her. And we're just happy to be together. And so, yeah, that, that has a happy ending, that story. Actually, what it is, is her dad said, um, if you want to date my daughter, you have to go to church. And I thought that was just the easiest way to impress a parent. Just I didn't show have to show up somewhere. I didn't have to be charismatic. I didn't have to go to all these <laughs> dinners. I didn't have to put on my best self. I just had to go be part of this church. And I ended up falling in love with that church and ultimately falling in love with Jesus and marrying that girl. Well, God bless your father-in-law. <laughs> That's right. It was a great tactic. I don't recommend missionary dating, but it worked for me and <laughs> but I'm it happy. it worked for you. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it worked for you. So you became a pastor and you came to SPU and got your master's in divinity and then said, as if being a pastor isn't hard enough, I'm going to go start from scratch and build a church up where there is no church. Yeah. Tell me about that decision. I think I'm young. And so from my perspective, it feels like the face of pastoring really is changing in my tradition, uh, free Methodism, which is kind of the founding tradition of Seattle Pacific University. We're facing a lot of the same challenges that most churches are facing. And so they're just isn't full-time vocational ministry jobs out there and those are getting harder and harder to find and I don't even know if that is a good model or if that's the model we want to be striving for moving into this kind of next season of ministry and so the options that I faced coming in a seminary were few there were a few of them and most mm -hmm. of them were part-time or some kind of different kind of ministry than I felt called to and so I was really faced with taking a part-time position somewhere or starting from scratch and with a church plant. We went into a season of prayer, thinking over and over again about what we felt like God was doing. And I didn't have any cloud break open voice from God or heaven speak to me, but I just felt like God's vision and my passions were aligning over this neighborhood that we ultimately ended up in. And we've just been taking small steps ever since towards that direction. And we ended up planting a church there and it's been wonderful. And so that's how we ended up doing what we are doing is just the reality of the situation and feeling like just following God where we feel like we were sense, sensing him calling. And what's the, the vision for that church or that project, if you will? What, what are you bringing to the neighborhood that wasn't there besides Jesus? Great question. And I don't know if this is where I need to go into this, but one of the deciding factors for me was John Perkins, which we have the Perkins Center here at SPU. Um, we read a few of his books in seminary, a, a great civil rights activist and someone who keeps Jesus at the center of his work and ministry. And so John Perkins has these three R's that are really outlined in his book called With Justice for All. The first R is relocation. And for John Perkins, this has to do with uh, intentionally going to impoverished communities and so I really felt convicted in reading this because he said, you, you probably have to leave your impoverished community to get trained, to get educated, but you really should think about going back. Because if we just strip all of our resources from these impoverished communities, that's going to do nothing but keep them impoverished. And so, so part of my vision in going back was these three R's of John Perkins. So relocation, the second one is reconciliation, which is where I feel like the phase we're in, mm -hmm. which is helping people connect to Jesus. Second Corinthians five stuff of reconciling um, back to God through Jesus Christ and reconciling neighbor to neighbor, overcoming all the isms and uh, structural sins that we face as a society. 
society. And so we're doing that as a church, becoming a family. The hard part about a church plant is that we're siblings that didn't know each other, right? We're, we're mm-hmm. strangers, really, kind of creating a, a family out of thin air. And then the third part of that R is redistribution. And that really has to do with the church kind of bringing up its own gifts and abilities and strengths and finances and figuring out how to, how to love its neighbors back to life. And so the vision has to do a lot with that. This also comes from my theological tradition of free Methodism. Our two-pronged mission in the beginning was to preach biblical Christianity, which I think every church wants to do. It's not a very unique vision in that regard. But the second one was uh, be good news to the poor. Those are kind of the predecessors to what we're doing at the table is that we really do feel like we want to go to a, a neighborhood that's struggling and be good news to people living bad news. I know these are all great cliches for church, but that kind of pushes us in that direction. And then once we're there, we're hoping, like I said, to help people connect with Jesus, connect with one another, and serve its community in such a way that people are saved. Souls and holes are saved and lifted up. and Whole lives and yeah, whole families. Yeah, yes, for sure. Yes. I'm very inspired by you and your work, and, and, and hopefully you. everyone who's listening is, is inspired by that. So here you are trying to do this yeah. work that will never end. Yeah. It's it's never like, okay, I'm done with my work for today. Right. I'm going to go home and play with my kids. Right. <laughs> so you're already at that place where there will never be enough hours in the day. Right. And then you say, how about I go run for the school board? Yeah. Talk to me about that decision. First, I kind of think about it in this apophatic sense, in this negative sense of what it's not. There's a a philosophy in Christianity or maybe just American Christianity. And I think sometimes it's called the captains of industry model. And what this says or, or believes is that if we can get enough high impact, influential Christians into influential positions that we can change our neighborhoods or our worlds or something like that. And I struggle with that thinking for a few reasons. One is I always struggle with how they want to change the culture. So I don't know, like, you know, they always have these, uh, Christian values that they want to, they want to reinforce or change. And I'm disillusioned by that. And that like, I always feel like they're just trying to exclude the sinners or the social deviants or something like that. And so I'm not totally compelled by that vision. And I don't think everyone who kind of affirms the captain of industry model is doing that, but I always am leery about that. That's one reason I'm leery about that. Right. Uh, you run on the, what you are against. Yeah. Right. Right. Which our world does not want to be. We don't about. need any more no, of those. No, we don't we need do any not. more of those politicians. But also I just, I feel like it, for me, it negates some core teachings of Jesus in that like uh, Jesus has this kingdom economy in mind that he really do, does see the kingdom of God infiltrating the world. And so Jesus has this new creation shalom in mind for the world and in his economy, it's it's the last that are first and it's the least that are the greatest. And so trying to get the best in the highest positions just feels opposite of what Jesus is trying to do in my mind. And so it is not that for me of like, let's just get highly impactful people into highly influential positions to kind of gear society in the way that we want it to go. I think it has to do uh, more with maybe an incarnational approach of trying to meet people where they are. I cannot make people engage Jesus or come to church, but everybody has to go to school. Mm. And school was so impactful for me as a heathen, as a (laughs) non-Christian that like, um, and my home life was so broken that teachers were really 
the loving adults in my life that cared and that had hope for me, instilled all these Christian values without being Christians, this this hope for me and, and, and thriving and wanting good things for me. And so what I'm hoping to do is use some of the gifts and skills that I have. Maybe it's that third R of John Perkins, that redistribution of taking what I've learned and, and trying to serve these students in such a way that uh, we can give them the opportunities that they don't have and be the adults in their life that maybe the adults that they have are not. And so I can't make people love Jesus, but I can hopefully help them love education. And that can serve as a foundation for them to, to launch off into something better than what the community has to offer in general or better than what maybe their life trajectory is right now. Sure. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it does. It makes sense to me. And I I think of it almost the same as working with the homeless population or or medical care. There's a time and a place where you have to keep someone alive long enough for them to meet Jesus. Yeah. Right? I mean, it really just, it literally comes down to food first. Right. Right. Food for the body first before they can have food for their soul. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. And and so I definitely see that perspective with education. Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right, of just making sure, I don't even know. You know, I know there's some pushback on that now, but I was trained sociology undergrad. And so just having those basic needs met so they can think about those higher order things is helpful. And, and, and it's part of my tradition, my theological tradition of we are going to be good news to the poor. That's part of our two-pronged mission. And in Wesley's uh, rules for his society, he talks about that we are going to be good news to the poor. And he says, first, this means bringing food, bringing clothes. And then second, it means bringing word of gospel. And so even in Wesley in the 1700s, acts of mercy and being good news to the poor means addressing some of those systematic issues and those basic needs that we all have and that socioeconomically disadvantaged folks struggle with. And in this day and age in America, education is a basic need. Is it not? I mean, right. it's food may be a little more immediate, yeah. but if you want to survive long term, right. education is a basic need yes. to get what you, your full potential out of your life. It meets that basic need of education, but also provides some basic services that like food. So my school district is uh, 88.8% socioeconomically disadvantaged students, which means we just give everyone free lunch because almost everyone qualifies for free lunch. And we also have this thing where everybody in our district eats together for the first 30 minutes of the day. They have breakfast in class together because they just need, they're coming to school hungry and they need some sustenance to like stay focused and engage what they're doing. And so, so not only are they getting educated, but it's just a place where we are also feeding most of these kids. And, and eating as a class, I'm sure much like uh, your church, which is called the table, yeah, sitting right. around the table, right, yes. creating that community. It takes what was seen as a bad thing. Yeah. You are poor. You must come early, sit in a cafeteria yeah. and eat when everyone else ate at home. Right. It turns that into a community moment where you are creating community within your classroom. Definitely. Yes. Yeah. Turning that negative into a positive that we can that we can use in the classroom. Yeah. And food was such a, a huge part in my life and my upbringing as far as education goes. That This is where I was getting warm meals. We were on all kinds of assistance and that food stamps would run out by the end of the month. And so school became kind of in my own story was associated with school. It was a place where I was going to go and eat and be with my friends and have a guaranteed meal. And it was warm. I even remember a moment in my own story where we forgot to turn in some paperwork to qualify for the free lunch. And there, and so the 
lunch lady said, I'm not going to let you go hungry, but I can't let you have lunch. And so she hands me this peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And at one moment, I was so grateful to have the food. But at the other moment, it was so stigmatizing to me because I was different. I wasn't eating the lunch that everybody else was eating. I'm just so glad that even in our school district that like we just we're just giving to everyone. There's no difference. And everyone's eating what they get. And they can all complain about how bad it is. And they can choose (laughs) not to eat it. But they have the dignity of choice in that. And uh, they get to do it as a community. And so and they're guaranteed something to eat. And so if they're hungry, I don't know, it just kind of meets my own story uh, and meets the needs of my community. And so I'm just happy to be where I am. I like that you brought up story. Uh, Before we pushed record, we were talking about story and how that impacts everything we do. Yeah. And how we're all learning more and more that story is the one thing that's going to make a real lasting impact. I mean, if you read the Bible... Most of it is a story, right. whether it's parable or history, it's in story. And the things that aren't story don't make sense to, sense to us unless we put a story back right. over the top of it. Why is this important? Why is it in there? So I love that you are using your own personal story directly day in and day out to affect those who will would have had the same story that you had yeah. and you hope will, who will have those redemption moments. I know you're on social media a lot trying to get that story out. Talk to me about how how you hope to use your story long term in your community. So I love telling my personal story uh, because I do hope to inspire hope in some of these students and these children. So what I did before I ran for the board and as I was beginning the early stages of this church plant was that I would substitute teach and students are very interested in who this person is that's in their classroom and they have a million questions and so one of the rewards that I would do was I would tell them the last five minutes of class they can ask any question they want unrelated to income and some of the things that kids want to know about that are inappropriate to talk about with children (laughs) they would ask me questions all day and I would write them down how old I am how many kids I have if I'm married and really what I loved to do was I would wait for that last five, 10 minutes, I would let them ask their questions. And then I'd begin to tell my own story. And what I would do was try to add this empathetic moment to it. So I carried around with me all the IDs that I had from the schools that I was in subbing in that they're currently in. And I would tell them how I was in their seat, literally sometimes in the classroom that I was subbing and was the classroom that I was in. And so I'd pull out my ID from Nelson Avenue Middle School and I would show them and they'd all get to make fun of it. But what I'm, <laughs> <laughs> the styles, you know, and the hair, just to hopefully tell them that as, as I progressed in my story, that there's an alternative future for them, that I was, I'm able to travel and I was able to go to school and I have a healthy and happy marriage and beautiful children that I actually love and want and don't feel like like they're a burden and 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 it started my story started where their story is and that if they really do kind of push for it then they can kind of move in that direction and so that is one of the things I loved about subbing was that getting to kind of hopefully just for a brief moment touch their life and give them some kind of encouragement that there's more outside of their situation that they're struggling through and that there is hope in all kinds of directions and ways and and then in our own church we're trying to tell a story I'm trying to figure out how to say this, but there's ways of loving Jesus that are different than maybe they've encountered in their childhood or what they see going on in Christianity in America as a whole, what they see on the news or the churches that they've known that have hurt them. And I don't pretend to be a church that is not going to hurt anybody. I mean, it's a, it's an institution and there's always going to be folks that get hurt, but we want to still continue in dialogue and figure out how we can grow. And, and so we're telling a story about our church because we want to show people that 
Jesus isn't the church that hurt them and that, I don't know, there's salvation and peace and joy outside of uh, what they've known about the church. And so we just kind of want to be telling a different story than maybe what they're used to. Our community, which I love, it's my home, um, tends to be more rural. And, and so we have some of those church stereotypes are very evident and present in our community. And so we're constantly battling um, that harsher, older, kind of more judgmental, stereotypical Christianity in our community. And so we want to tell the story of Jesus in a more whole way and tell it uh, our story as a tradition, as a theological tradition, which includes more people than have been excluded and draws that circle of love a little bit bigger so that people don't feel like they have to get washed up and cleaned up before they show up and they can uh, meet Jesus and let Jesus do some work. That's one of the stories we're trying to tell as a church, I think, social media wise, for sure. That's great. Hopefully we can come down and and visit you sometime in your school board and in your church. (laughs) we would love that for sure. So as we're, as we're running out of time, I want to end with one sort of big question, but then make it small at the same time. And so I want to say, what's the dream? If you could have a magic wand and wave it over your community, what would it be? And then towards that dream with that dream in mind, what is some little thing we, that each and every one of us can do every day to move our community towards that dream? When I think of the big dream of church or even the mission behind the kingdom, it, it might be too big, but I think of Shalom. I think of, I think of new creation and what that means in my community, uh, waving that magic wand is breaking these generational cycles of poverty and addiction. And for me, that has to do with a, a hopelessness that is present in our community. And so one of the things I'm constantly doing, and we just talked about story, is I'm learning about the story of the birth of our community. It kind of comes out of gold rush. And then as the gold was drying up, it turned into an agricultural community, but it had this huge hope for it. The main street that our church is on is called Grand Avenue. It's lined with palms, and it was to be this like resort area that people could come and get out of their uh, bad weather and kind of sun in our neighborhood. And and it, it just kind of falls apart. There's this major freeze that happens in 1924 and it just kills a bunch of stuff and the community kind of gets abandoned. And then I don't know if you know about our community, but we have the tallest dam in the United States, Orville does. And so it's one of our sources of pride. Like it's 50 feet taller than Hoover Dam. And so I always say we have uh, the tallest dam in the United States and two Taco Bells. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> we just got our first Starbucks like two years ago. Uh, and so this has this huge community boost for us where all these workers and this economy kind of grows around this dam. But at the completion of the dam, we... We end up with a community that doesn't have a lot of industry. And the hope for me and for my community is that we could instill some more hope, which may be the theme of this whole podcast, that people could feel like they have a future. I feel like that's the thing that's going to break these cycles of just trying to survive from day to day or doing the same thing that their parents did or trying to numb or cope in unhealthy ways because they don't see a future. And this is maybe even part of my own story that I didn't really have a future. My future was to try not to to die, to stay out of trouble or not get trapped in the same traps that everybody. And having a negative future of like trying not to is not hope. We, we need some kind of positive vision and future. And so that's why one of the reasons I'm in education is because I think that can help provide that for sure. But I would love to see more industry come. I would love to see more opportunities come. I would love to see people engaged opportunities that they already have in a more full and healthy way so that they can 
get out of the cycles and systems that they are in that are so hurtful. One thing that I think we can do, maybe going back to what I was talking about previously, is I think that we can try to gear our lives more intentionally towards folks that are hurting and marginalized. I, like I said, this is part of that John Perkins thing. This is part of my own theological tradition that the two-pronged mission, one was to go to these, these neighborhoods intentionally. And so maybe... I'm not saying alter anyone's life in any major way or change your course of trajectory or projection, but if we can think of small ways to engage hurting people, to infuse hope, to meet those basic needs that we were talking about, even in small ways, and uh, help with social uplift and encouragement and guiding and direction, just maybe even using the gifts and resources that we have as a family or an individual as a church, Um, I think that would be helpful. So having an eye towards people that we normally try to sweep under the rug or that we think are somehow social outcasts or places that we're trying to move away from, that if we can maybe even just try to bring them back into our purview for a minute or a moment or a couple hours a month, I think would be really, really helpful. And what can seem like a burden of one more thing to do is interesting because it almost always turns back into hope, right? The hope begets hope. When you offer hope to someone else, you bring it back into yourself, your family, and your own story. Right. I think it may be even Henry Nouwen who talks about that we, these people that we go to bring God to, we ultimately find God in. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's not necessarily the burden, but it might be even where we experience Jesus most fully. Amen. Well, James, thank you so much for coming up to Seattle and sharing your story with us. I'm so glad. Thank and, you. And uh, hopefully we can come meet you in Orville sometime and take some photos of the dam. We would love to have you anytime. You're <laughs> welcome. I'm so honored. Thanks for letting me be here. We hope you liked today's interview and learned something along the way. From Amanda and Kyle, we ask you to rate, review, and subscribe so we can keep bringing you these personal stories with universal impact. See you soon. Thank you.